Hi, and welcome to the Dorothy House podcast. My name is Holly, and I'm the project manager and the communications team. And in this series, we're going to be focusing on some of the amazing staff who are part of the Dorothy House family and the work that they do here at the hospice and across our community. Today, I'm joined by Sue, who's one of our hospice at home carers. Thanks for joining us, Sue. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So Sue, tell me just a little bit about your role at Dorothy House and what it involves. Okay, well, um, I'm a hospice at home carer, predominantly nights, and I work from the hours of 10 till 7 in the morning. And this involves supporting the patient and family in their own homes. So people that wish to remain at home rather than hospital or, you know, move to, to nursing homes. Um, so it's anybody really with a life-limiting illness that have been referred to Dorothy House. Sometimes um, hospice at home is the only service that the patient has um, and the families have, you know, involvement with. Um, sometimes there are others. So we sometimes can be the only people that, that they ever see, you know, from, from Dorothy House. So my role involves um, personal care, um, assisting with medications, assisting with mobility. So anybody that needs help with toileting, um, mobility in bed, because obviously a lot of our patients are bed bound, symptom control, which is a big one, especially, you know, towards end of life when it really is the, you know, the very end. Um, reassurance and empathy, I think, with the family, because um, I think they want someone to come in on an evening when they've had a really hard day. So they can go to bed, but they like to feel that they can leave their patient, um, you know, their relative, um, our patient in the care of someone who's competent to do, you know, to deal with most things. Um, so we can help them with all sorts of things. Sometimes it's a bit of pre-bereavement counselling. Very quite often for the family, that's what's involved, because sometimes the patient is quite settled. Um, you know, they could be unconscious. Um, so, you know, it's at the stage really then when we spend more time with the family. So, you know, there's lots of questions they want to ask. So it's allaying their fears um, and sometimes providing information to them and very often signposting. So quite often they might want other services or they, they might feel they need other services, not just within Dorothy House, but obviously outside of Dorothy House as well. And then we can help with that or I can help with that. You know, I can obviously highlight that. And let the hospice at home office know that um, this family may need support from somewhere else as well. So what is a typical day or or should I say night look like for you? Um, well, I do like to always arrive early because um, obviously like to find where we, we're working at night. Sometimes we can't find the, the address very easily. Um, what's very obvious in the day is very different at night. Um, and sometimes sat nav don't always take you to the correct, correct place. Um, so I like to arrive early, as I said, um, obviously introduce myself to the family. Um, sometimes it may be the first time anybody's ever seen anybody from Dorothy House. So they may have spoke to someone on the phone, but face to face, maybe not met anybody. So I do like to explain my role um, and obviously my part um, in amongst you know, the Dorothy House services. Um, like to obviously find out about exits in the house, um, you know, just, just simple things, simple housekeeping things to start with. Um, obviously then my patient is, you know, is the, is the priority. So mm. to meet the patient, um, yeah. reassure them of why I'm there for a start, which is um, can be quite daunting to some people sometimes. 
Um, we do like to do a, a check of the patient. So when I arrive, I would check things like um, catheters, ensure they're working, um, syringe drives, if they have a syringe driver to make sure that um, that's working correctly, check the site to make sure that where the needle actually goes into the skin, that that's okay. Um, I would be checking skin if I can, you know, so obviously for tissue viability. So to make sure that they haven't got any sores that we're unaware of, um, any swollen limbs, you know, just things like that that can make a lot of difference comfort wise. Um, and then personal care if needed. So sometimes they may actually need changing as we arrive or help with um, using, you know, the toilet um, or bedpans, you know, things like that. So we would do that as well. Um, we would like to make sure that all meds are taken before they're due to go to sleep. But obviously you need to check with the family, um, the medications that they also due to have during the night, if any, um, and what they can have um, if, if, they, if it is needed overnight obviously, before we think about any other intervention um, to make sure, obviously, that they're eating, drinking um, when they're awake. You know, we encourage fluids um, Try and really try and keep them set up to have a nice night. Um, mm. We do like to build a really good relationship with the family and, and the patient, because then I think they feel quite um, confident then that, yeah. you know, they can speak to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the main thing to make to build up a rapport and, and to make them feel comfortable, comfortable with us going in. Because for some people, it's quite daunting having someone in your house overnight. You know, mm. not a lot of people. I mean, it's something you don't, you, you're not used to. No. You know, no. You know a, patient, a patient's come out of hospital, a family member's come out of hospital. They've been looked after maybe for weeks, you know, by this miraculous team of, of medical staff. And then suddenly they're being transported home with all this equipment, hospital beds, you know, commodes. Yeah. You know, that's not normal, obviously, in, 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 a, in a home. Um, and then I think that can be quite frightening, really, for the relatives to see all that. Mm -hmm. um, and they suddenly think, now I'm on my own. What can I do? They've had, you know, I don't know what to do now. So I think it's just really relay, you know, lay, laying their fears, um, just making them feel that they can, you know, obviously rely on us overnight, get a decent night's sleep. Mm -hmm. And that we'll be there to, to, to help with anything that happens. Mm -hmm. They're, yeah, really interesting because it's... They've, they've kind of had an immense amount of support all around them, like you say, in hospital and then coming home. It's helping them to still feel that they've, they've got that support um, right there for them. But now instead of being um, at the nearest um, hospital, they can be right there at home surrounded by the ones that they love. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it feels like that would be invaluable. I mean, it is. I mean, and a lot of the time we're reassuring families that they're doing the right thing. Um, because they will say a lot of the time they feel that they, they can't cope. Mm. So, um, you know, suddenly they're in charge of this person. They have this person to look after 24 hours a day. And, and it's very hard. You know, it's hard to be with someone that can be maybe sometimes quite demanding. Um, you know, they're, they're in pain. You know, they don't know what to do. There's a lot of work to do, a lot of physical work sometimes, you know, to, to actually look after someone. So we need to make sure that they feel happy with doing that. And, you know, and that they're actually assisting with with what the patient wants yeah you know, you know so they want to they want to remain at home I mean it's not always it's not always easy it's not always plain sailing you know we do have some people whose symptoms are sometimes unmanageable um you know but we do our best but then that wouldn't be any different wherever they were hmm. you know we've got such a fantastic MDT in the community 
you know, with obviously support from Dorothy Hayes, the district and nurses. MDT, just break that down. Yeah, so the multidisciplinary team. Yeah. So obviously we have that within Dorothy Hayes, but then also that involves the, the nurse specialists, um, out of hours GPs, you know, lots of other care agencies, any other service really that we rely on heavily, especially overnight. Um, obviously mm-hmm. we can ring the advice line at Dorothy mm-hmm. House for advice if we need that. But sometimes we need a physical visit, um, which obviously is more difficult at night um, because there's not many as many people around. Um, and but we we've got a really good relationship with the out of hours nurses and doctors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But obviously covering three CCGs with all three different ways of working, you know, is is an, is sometimes can be, you know, a bit of a struggle. Um, but I think we're used to it now, you know, and I think mm-hmm. it's just really being the liaison as well between those services and the relatives. Yeah. That help, mm-hmm. you know. you're, you're a liaison for the patient to be a real advocate for them, but you're also a real confidence boost for the families and the carers and that they're taking care of the patient. So you wear many capes in your role. We do. I mean, it, it involves so much. Like I say, sometimes it involves pre-bereavement counselling. You know, especially when um, you find mainly when when a, when a patient is unresponsive, so they're nearing probably the last few days of life, the relatives want to know. I mean, the question always is, how long? Mm-hmm. You know, how how, how yeah. long is how long is this going to last? You know, they've not eaten for a week, they've not drunk for days. How can they possibly go on this long? Yeah. So, you know, you're reassuring them, but also just really letting them know, you know, what to expect. Because, you know, it, does, it doesn't always follow the same path. Obviously, everybody's different. But there are things that we can look out for and we can say, well, you know, less urination. You know, obviously, you know, they'll sleep more and more. You know, that you may know, notice chest sounds. You know, just small differences, things like that. That's the mm. sort of thing, really, to look out for these small changes. Sure. Um, but and a lot of the time, they, just, they just, just want to talk. You know, they want to talk. They want to reminisce, you know, and, and, and we're there for that. Mm. you know and, and what to expect you know like I say what to expect what to do after yeah um because you know it's all very well having someone at home and they don't always know what to do you know mm. and, and really preparing them mm. and and saying well you know have you thought about a funeral director do you know who you're going to use um because lots of people don't even think of that you know or they want to leave it to yeah, the last sure. minute and then really you know that sort of things that we like to encourage them to talk about Sure. Just so they're prepared, mm-hmm. you know, really. Mm-hmm. And I think then that makes them feel a bit more happy that, you know, they're more, they're more, they're more um organized and things are going to go the way that this, that, you know, their their relative wanted. Do you think that there's a superstition around talking about the process of death and dying and what happens after the person dies, things in in the setting up, you know, a funeral or remembrance and things like that, that it might usher death early. Do you think that might be some of where the hesitation comes from? Or is it just that they're they're overwhelmed by the thought of their loved mm-hmm. one dying or just a mix of everything? I don't think it's superstition because I think most people have watched their loved one probably going through quite an awful process you know, the dying process for probably some time. And I think they don't want it to go on. The the patient certainly doesn't want it, you know, to go on. So I think really most people experience that sense of, you know, I just want this to be over now for Mm. for all concerned. You know, they don't want to see their loved one suffering. So I don't think it's that. I think a lot of it is really, they've probably never experienced it before. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's not, you know, many people haven't, um, you know, 
how many times you know have you had someone die in your own home right so it's, exactly. you know not it's not an everyday occurrence is it so I think a lot of it is just lack of knowledge um and people just not knowing what to expect and sometimes a bit scary for sure. them to see someone die which a lot of people haven't seen you know before and there's always I think that there's always that real worry that it might not be peaceful mm-hmm. I think to everybody because you know if they've seen a relative agitated at any point during this process then I think they always worry that that's going to come back yeah and that I'll see that again even yeah. though we try as hard as possible you know to make sure that doesn't happen mm. um it, you know we can't always rely you know meds don't always do you know what this, no, I'm not saying what they're supposed to do but they don't always work you know it all depends Sometimes patients have unresolved issues. So it could be what we call more of a total pain. So total pain is where someone might be worried about something and they may feel that something is unresolved. It could be, you know, relationships, um, financial worries. And sometimes that can actually play on a patient's mind Mm. and that can cause problems and agitation at end of life because they don't feel that maybe they're ready or that they don't feel things are in place enough at that time so you know I mean there's so sometimes there's no getting away with you know that sort of end of end of life agitation um but we do all we can obviously to help that you know we've got you know a whole host of uh, things we can use for distraction purposes symptom control you know and obviously um to make things easier for the patient um but sometimes I say I think the relatives always worry that that is going to come back if they've seen a relative, um, their their loved one in pain and agitated, I think they worry that's going to come back. Mm. Uh, is there are there any patient stories, um, someone's home you've been in, or anyone you've interacted with that really stick out to you over the years that you've been a hospice at home carer, and um, anyone that really touched your heart? Or um... well, do you know, to be honest, most of them do. Oh. Um, you know, and you know, and it's it's you know it's. It's hard because you do build up a good relationship. Um, I know we're supposed we have boundaries, but you can't help it. I think sometimes you, when you're seeing the same person maybe for a month before they die, probably a couple of times a week, because mm-hmm. I work four nights a week. Sometimes I could be with that same person four nights a week for months before. Um, so you do build up a relationship. So it's always quite sad, mm-hmm. but a relief again for everybody. I think, you know, in the end, I think the family feel that. And I think there's always a real sense of guilt sometimes with the relations that they feel guilty for feeling that. But it's I think it's a natural, you know, it's just a natural reaction. So, no, there was a gentleman that I looked after probably for years on and off with Dorothy House and um, through an outside agency as well. Um, and, you know, he he was bed bound. He had no mobility at all, but he could talk so he could communicate really well. And, you know, we were preparing him, preparing his wife, because it was inevitable, obviously, that, you know, he was obviously going to die at some point. And unfortunately, his wife ended up dying first. She had a sudden death, sudden death. So to be going into him after his wife had died, when everything had been geared for him to be dying, Mm. that was a bit of a, you know, that was a bit of a shock. But then again, something that we all worked through, um, you know, a great thing to learn from you know that you know it's not always things don't always go as you expect them expect them to go so that was that was something you know obviously that always sticks in my mind and even Mm. now I mean unfortunately he's he's no longer with us but 
you know, I think I probably would have kept in contact if, you know, we were you know, obviously still around. Um, but I, I meet lots of people. I turn up at people's homes sometimes. And it could be the parents of people I went to school with. You know, I, I live in Bath. It's a small, a small place. So quite often I'll, I'll arrive at someone's door, knock on the door, and I recognise the person that answers. And, you know, I'm there to look after their parents. And sometimes I've actually looked after both parents. Wow. So I've gone to look after the parent, the mum, and then a few days later turn up again, you know, maybe to, to the father. So, you know, that, that's, but that's nice because mm. I, you feel then that you bring an added bonus, I think, actually to their care. The fact that this person knows you mm. um, gives them that extra sense of, of confidence in you. The fact that, you know, they feel they're, you're going to really look after their, their relatives. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it really is where we look after people as well. You know, I think that sticks in my mind. I think most, you know, most people... Um, obviously live in homes, um, houses, bungalows, but I've actually looked after someone in a shipping container. Um, I won't go into too much detail because it'd be quite obvious who it is if I did, but, um, you know, yeah, it can actually refurbish refurbish this shipping container so it looked like an ultra-large static caravan, I suppose, really. You know, everything inside, Um, but that was quite quite weird, really, turning turning up at a yard um, for that. Um, Narrowboats. People that live on narrowboats, obviously, sure. we, we yeah. reach out to everybody. And I did, in fact, one that I remember really fondly was someone that wanted to die as outside as possible. So he wanted to be um, in a field. Um, so his wife arranged for a yurt to be erected in a friend's field on their land. And he died in that yurt. So we were traveling backwards and forwards to look after him there. Wow. So I think a lot of it, you know, there's it's just lots of different things. Um, I don't think there's any because obviously the death is, you know, obviously every death is is, is sad. Um, I don't think there's anything that really sticks in my mind as being obviously a happy occasion. But what I take away from most of this is that after the initial shock, sometimes of death, or the after the initial upset, that families tend to have a bit of a laugh a bit of a giggle you know mm. sometimes they might have a drink together and they're quite happily reminiscing you know mm. about, about about their relative because when someone um obviously dies at home um I like to stay with the family until the patient has left the, has left the house uh, left the home so that could involve hours four hours maybe of you know chatting to chatting to the relatives providing a bit of bereavement support um and generally by this time they're actually have gone through the, the immediate upset. They're actually quite happy and like I say, because they're reminiscing about the family sure. and about their loved one and with each other. Sometimes it's the only time that families ever get together. Actually, at that time, they only see each other at these, these mm. unfortunately sad times. Um, so, you know, people travel from all over the place, don't they, to see someone who's ended life. So quite often it's um, a nice way of people getting together. Um, but no real stories as such that I can talk about I don't think really but it's just relationships that you make I keep in touch now with some people you know relatives and you know parents of of maybe younger people that have died um and yeah quite often Christmas cards things like that you know because they want to keep involved can they do that and I said well yes you know it's it's not a problem tell me a little bit about your training to get to where you are so becoming a hospice at home carer what's that involved what's your journey looked like Okay, well, I think um, I was lucky because I had um, experience working in the RUH. 
So I didn't, before I joined the IOH, I was completely new to any kind of care. I just decided after my children were born that I wanted a complete change um, of job. And whatever I did, once I had my kids, was what I wanted to do. Something I wanted to do, something I enjoyed. So I applied for the IOH and got a job there working nights, which I absolutely loved. Worked on William Budd for a good few years and bank all over the hospital. So experienced all of the wards, which was great. But palliative care, I think working on William Birds really resonated, I think, mm. with me. And that was the kind of, of, of work that I wanted to do. So then I applied for Dorothy House Bank to work nights because we were only working nights then. This was mm. like 15 years ago. Sure. Um, and, and so I did both. And then Dorothy House offered me a permanent position and um, I went to Dorothy House. So really it was that caring role that I'd been in before, especially with the palliative care experience you know, that, that helps. Mm. Um, I don't think anybody has to have palliative care experience um, necessarily to join, but obviously a decent caring background um, to join Dorothy House. And I think you pick up as you go. And Dorothy House have been great for all the training courses, you know, that we've done and the actual in-house training that we've had, you know, in, in palliative care. Yeah. I mean, that always helped. Do you also receive training um, for some of the the emotional and um you know, less the the medical side, but also the other side of like the bereavement and that and helping families through the process. Yeah, we've had training training for that. And obviously that is not necessarily something that we have to do man, man, mandatory, but it's always available if we need it. There's always um, a course of some kind, you know, that we can use. But obviously being an employee of Dorothy House, we're very lucky that we can actually as employees contact our family support team for ourselves if needed. Clinical supervision is another great way of support. So that is a monthly meeting um, where we meet a group, very small group of, of people. Sometimes it's people in the same role, but maybe not always. So we get then a chance to talk about maybe what we're worried about, something, something we just want to get off our chest. Um, and, and obviously listen to others' experiences as well. You know, we learn then I think from each other. So there's always been that really good support from us, however we feel. Mm you know, that we can get things off our chest. The office are amazing as well. If I've had a really awful night and I wanted to talk to someone before I went to bed, which can be the case, then I know I can ring the office, hospice, home office, speak to one of the nurses there and just have a good chat, you know, about about how I feel generally. Um, Yeah, I I think that's great. I've heard of um, the carers phoning in when they've um, gotten lost or met someone famous or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a really great team to be part of as well. It is amazing. Um, we all support each other. Um, if we want swaps, like shift swaps, for instance, just simple things like that, you know, we can do that amongst ourselves. Um, I think the, day, the girls who work in the days have a really good relationship because they get to see each other, obviously, a bit more than we do. Before COVID, we used to meet regularly on a monthly basis and have a kind of training session, but it was more of a chance for us to get together really and have a bit of a chinwag, which is is great because we don't see each other. We're lone workers. We don't really see anybody too much, but that was always good. And that will obviously restart, you know, soon. I think it may have already started. I think I was aware, I think the last one, Um, but that's always a really good support. And we do chat amongst ourselves as well. So if someone is working a night shift and I know they're working a night, you know, it's it's a kind of buddy. You know, really, where I might text someone and say, "How's your night going?" Mm. It's just knowing that there's someone else there. Yeah. So, starters, I always find that's quite useful for them. 
I will give them my mobile number and say, you know, I, I'm working. Look, check the nights I'm working. If I'm working when you are, if you feel you want a bit of a chat, want to ask a question about something, then obviously I'm there. You know, just just do it. You know, I'll look at keep our phones on us, obviously, so we can do that. Because um, I think it's quite nice to have that support. Sure. Sometimes they don't always want to ring the advice line straight away. They may feel a bit silly or feel that their question is silly. So they just want to run it by sort of like an employee or, you know, a colleague first. Mm. Um, but no, we've always had, I think we've always had a good, really good working relationship. So it, how, um, how long have you been at, um, been at Dorothy House as a carer? So 15 years. Um, I started working nights and then I did revert to days for a few years um, when my children needed me a bit more when they're that sort of teenage years and you need to be a mobile, you know, taxi, taxi service. Um, but now they're older. Um, I said, I worked with the district nursing team um, in the office, I worked at Windsor, worked in a contact centre. So I've been quite lucky to have the opportunity to do a range of jobs within Dorothy House, which for me has been great because I understand how everything works, you know, which I think for me is invaluable. Yeah, so now my um, girls are in their 20s. So I've only got one at home, one's left, one's at home. So now they don't need me as much. So I haven't done for the last few years. So I've been back to nights now for about two and a half years. And I say it suits me now. It's, you know, it's what suits at the time. It did 15 years ago and it does again now. Mm. Um, I've got a diabetic dog that needs someone with him in the day. So I'm here for him. And he's got someone with him 24 hours. So, uh, but no, it suits me. It suits my lifestyle now, really, I suppose. So what would you say then, lastly, um, if somebody asks you, you know, what do you love most about your job? Because um, obviously there's some tremendously difficult parts emotionally and physically and in all these different ways relationally. Um, but obviously 15 years, you keep coming back. So what is it you love? Um, well, it's, it's great to work for a charity for a start. Dorothy House has always had such a fantastic reputation um what I didn't mention before is that I did actually temp for Dorothy House 22 years ago when my when my first daughter was a baby um and I loved it then but um wasn't obviously wouldn't look into work anywhere then you know full-time or anything mm-hmm. um just to temp for a while so it's always been something I've loved I've always felt really passionate about Dorothy House our holistic approach to supporting our families and patients the fact that it's not just you know, looking after someone in the last two weeks of life, it's the years before, you know, maybe, and being there for the families, yeah. um, giving back to the community, working within my local community is amazing. I could be working, you know, one street across, I could be working in Calm, you know, so it's, it's, it's varied um, mm. and always something different. Um, and I feel I'm making a difference. You know, I go home at the end of the night feeling, wow, that was a tough night, but I've made a difference if not to the patient, you know, to the family, um, because they do rely on us. I think they need to know that if they're going to be working all day, that at night they can just switch off and, and do nothing. Um, and Dorothy House has always been really good to me. You know, I've always loved what I've done. The hours suit me. You know, we've had a, I've had a range of hours I can choose from. Um, but the main thing is job satisfaction. I, don't, I think if you, if you don't have that, then, um, you know, you're not really that happy in your job sometimes, are you? Um, for me, it, it just suits me, suits me down to the ground. Mm. You know, I think once you're a carer, if you're a caring person, this is a job for you. Sometimes people go into it for the wrong reasons. But I would say that most of the people that work for Dorothy House are there because they care. They are the real carers amongst us. 
Yeah. You know, and um, like I say, it's, it's fantastic support that we receive as an employee. You know, me seeing our CEO as a, a nurse specialist and, you know, like I say, now he's a CEO. So it's just nice to have, you know, those kind of relationships for the years, you know, through the years. It's, it's lovely. You know, it feels like a family, really. Thank you so much, Sue. That This has been absolutely brilliant. Great to get a window into your world as a hospice at home care at Dorothy House. And thank you so much for taking the opportunity to chat with me today. Um, if you listening at home would like to find out more about our services, or perhaps you'd like to know more about joining our team or joining Sue's team, you can visit us at dorothyhouse.org.uk and look out for our jobs. And you can also keep up to date with our latest news events and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Insta. Thank you so much for joining us today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.